This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? 9.36 a.m. Good morning. You're listening to The Morning Brun. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. and Chong Jen Sun. This is WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits you may have missed. We prepare you for your weekend get-together so you don't run out of topics to discuss. Let's get started with the first story that's uh, in our crosshairs. Now, I want you all to recall back to the year 2015 when the film The Big Short helped to crystallize the concept of short selling to the masses. So let's recall all the knowledge that we learned from that film as we look at the latest short selling saga involving Asia's richest man, Gautam Adani, and his Adani Group empire. Yeah, I think what you've seen is that this report that came out from Hindenburg Research, a pretty lengthy report, I think has had chilling consequences on Adani's stock. The group lost almost $11 billion of its market value after the research was made public, basically saying that there has been brazen stock manipulation and accounting fraud in that company. Yeah, so to give you some context, Adani is the world's third richest person with an estimated fortune of close to $120 billion. And this is according to Forbes. So the only people richer than him is Bernard Arnold, Bernard Arnold and Elon Musk. And he founded the mining to energy conglomerate Adani Group after dropping out of university. And many of his businesses are involved in natural gas, coal mining and electricity generation. So the acquisitions are quite... Um, I would say revealing. Um, but I guess as long as the report by Hindenburg is in line with securities regulation, my view is that this is fair game as long as the content of the report is factually correct. But the accusations are actually quite serious. I mean, the, the words of stock manipulation, accounting yeah. fraud as well. Let's put the, let's detail with the content of the report. Hindenburg accuses Mr. Adani of pulling the largest con in corporate history, right? This comes days ahead of a planned sale of Adani Group shares to the public. Now, the report also questioned Adani Group's ownership of companies in offshore tax havens, such as Mauritius and the Caribbean. It also claimed Adani companies had substantial debt, which put the entire group on a precarious financial footing. Unless truth be told, told, though, there have been earlier reports, actually as early as August last year, about the mounting credit worthiness of some of its companies. So this is not new per se, but I think the consequences about this report is that finally we're seeing something that's now hitting Asian shores, because usually Hindenburg is quite well known for its attacks uh, in stocks based in the US. Mm. And the most notable one was Nikola, the electric vehicle truck company. I think it should also be noted that um, Adani Group has denied these allegations. The company said on Thursday that it was exploring legal action against Hindenburg, describing the allegations as maliciously mischievous and unresearched. Um, so again, it, it depends. We still have to see what happens on this front and um, mm. how it will play out. But um, like you said, Phil, it is quite unusual for um, Hindenburg to be striking out against a foreign company. Um, and I think I think for India, at least, this is something that they'll be watching very closely because Adani Group has such huge influence in the economy. Very much so. I mean, it's even hitting the political sphere because opposition politicians, I'm sorry, opposition politicians, you know, allege that Mr. Adani has very close proximity relationship with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. So they've reacted and basically are asking the government to investigate further. 
Yeah, I wonder what uh, Hindenburg's reputation is like in terms of revealing revealing companies which have allegedly had stock manipulation, accounting fraud, and money laundering. And that would be quite a good case study to see in terms of um, what the track record was, whether some of the analysis was really revealing in terms of um, exposing these uh, uh, this, uh, whether it's factually correct or not. Well, it is very painful. I'll give you an example, Nicola Cop. Because of the report, at its height, Nicola Cop shares were sixty-six dollars. Now, two fifty-three. Okay, so we'll see how that plays out. There is an interesting article in Bloomberg by opinion um, writer Shuli Ren, who says that Hindenburg's efforts um, against Adani may not really uh, play out as it does in, I guess, more developed markets, simply because emerging markets have a completely different um, landscape when it comes to these large corporations. So um, how it's going to play out remains to be seen indeed. Now, from the uh, issue of short selling, let's turn our attention over to what's happening on the Ukraine war front. I think the big announcement this week came from the US and Germany, who both announced that they would be sending um, armored tanks to Ukraine after quite a lengthy round of back and forth and dithering from both of these countries. The, the worry was, why was there so much dithering? You saw the West, I think, divided. The likes of the UK, many Eastern European nations pushing very hard to see what we can do to arm Ukraine. But Germany was very tentative. Only just, as you said, Charles, this week, they kind of agreed to you know, start you know, allowing the uh, Leopard tanks to move. And as you said, also in the US, the Abrams tanks as well. So the question is, why is the West divided in the level of support they afford to Ukraine? Yeah, I think it was also a triumph of political calculation over logistical concerns. Mm -hmm. And it made no sense for Pentagon to really go through this kind of headaches of sending the country's most advanced tanks to Ukraine when there were very capable German Leopard tanks nearby that could get to Ukraine faster and operate more efficiently as well. So I guess the issue all along has been rather political and not really military in that sense. So what is really revealing is how afraid the EU allies are about facing Russia without that buy-in from the United States as well. Mm. I think it's a very good point in the sense that I also would think that do you want to escalate the crisis further? And let's just remind ourselves that we're just one month away from the anniversary of the conflict. And if you recall in the early stages of the war, it was very hard, right, to move all this heavy artillery and military around because it was, you know, at the side of, start of spring, things were thawing, there was a lot of mud. So I wonder if also it's a political calculation on that side. And whether or not if you start, you know, arming Ukraine to this extent, are you escalating the war even further? I think that's also perhaps the, the nuanced concerns that many in the West might have with respect to providing more arms to Ukraine. I think nobody wants to see this war prolong, but it is, as you said, coming up to the one-year anniversary. Very different from what Russia said when they first embarked on this um, expedition. Uh, They said it would be a short military operation, not very short, 12 months on. I don't think anyone can call that short. There was this talk about, you know, this crisis could have had three scenarios, and you called it the 666 scenario. Would it be finished in six weeks? Would it be finished in six months? (gasps) Or would it be finished in six years? Right? And clearly, Clearly, what we've seen is that it definitely didn't finish in six weeks. It's definitely moved past six months. And the question and worry we have is, will this conflict prolong up to even six years? And it sounds and the way how the Russian forces have been so resilient also in, you know, I think Ukraine also has been extremely resilient. They seem to be, you know, you know, bunkering down and expecting this war to prolong. 
All right, something that uh, we are unfortunately going to be keeping a close eye on throughout the year as the situation um, remains tense. Uh, but uh, we turn our attention to another story that actually has a lot of parallels to us here at home. And this is regarding egg prices in the U.S. So apparently um, Americans have been suffering uh, pretty high egg prices. I think uh, eggs have shot up 60% year on year Um Putting a hol- putting strain on holiday budgeting, obviously. I mean, we've seen how it had um, repercussions for us when we saw our egg prices yeah. uh, skyrocket, um, and it's also happening over in the US. And it is a crucial source of protein for many people. I think that's why it's very it's sitting very close to home. You know, some Americans have been very creative with their sourcing. They've attempted to smuggle the eggs across the US-Mexico border. <laughs> Apparently that's been surging. Uh, they've actually seen egg and poultry sieges rose 108% from 1st October to 31st December. Wow, these egg dealer- dealers don't play play. No, they don't. And uh, if you're a TikTok fiend like I am and you follow a bunch of uh, small farmers on that platform, you can see that they're all joking about how uh, you know they're making the big bucks now that they've their chickens have eggs and everyone's craving eggs. And it's a, it's a pretty, um, it's humorous. It's humorous in a way, yes. But don't do all these things because eventually the chicken will come to roost. Sure. <laughs> you just wanted to bring that in. Now, the reason why eggs um, have been, the prices of eggs have been skyrocketing is because of an avian flu, yep. I think, that has hit the poultry mm. sector there, which um, is impacting the supply of eggs. Yeah, but I think that's one farmer advocacy group which accuses major egg producers of actually increasing prices in a collusive scheme aimed at increasing profits. So the group is called Farm Action and they've examined publicly available financial data from the egg industry and they've written a letter to the Federal Trade Commission to investigate record prices and what they've said is that the avian flu apparently only had a mild impact on the industry, generally lowering the average size of an egg laying flock by no more than 6% compared with 2021. Wait a minute. This script is quite familiar. A cartel? Collusion? Collusion? Doesn't this have a this lot is of... not new. <laughs> where, where have you heard this before, Jensen? I don't think this is a unique story. Are you fabricating this? I have, I have selective memory, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we look over um, at our own shores, the prices of eggs have stabilised somewhat, but yeah. they are still at a premium from what they were perhaps a year ago. Um, and yeah, it does continue to have an impact. I think Malaysia started importing eggs yeah. about a month ago as well. Um, so that is having an alleviating factor. And but... we have this debate also about whether we're going to remove the ceiling price. Mm. Yeah, because that's also the biggest question we've always had Head, right? Is it fair for, for producers to have all these artificial ceilings? But at the same time, if you see them curb supply, you will naturally see prices rise. So then the government counteracts and responses accordingly. So there's also been this conversation happening in the past two, three weeks, right? Whether the government will be removing the ceiling price for many poultry-related products. I wonder if either of you have, I guess, as a result of this, thought about maybe raising your own chickens to get a, a steady supply of eggs. You don't need a lot of chickens, right? Two or three chickens Perhaps. Well, I was reading a book, uh, and yes, a lot of people actually rear eggs, and my my neighbor actually has chickens. Um, I rely on the chickens though to wake me up in the morning so I can get <laughs> to the studio. So uh, I mean, for me, the utility of the chicken really is to wake me up, really. Right. So you're not there for the eggs or the, the meat, eggs. but uh, in any case, it is nine forty seven in the morning. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll come back with more discussions on news that's making the world go round. Stay tuned to WTF on BFM eighty nine point nine.
9.49 a.m. Thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run. You are listening to WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Philip C. and Chong Jen Sun. In this half of the show, we are going to be taking a look at some of the big stories that have dominated conversation this week, uh, beginning with the uh, letters HDB. B, uh, which stands, of course, for the Housing Development Board over in Singapore. Now, why has this caused a bit of a ruckus or an uproar in our political scene? Well, what we hear is that our current housing ministry, uh, isn't quite right, local government development minister Nga Koming, was alleged to have gone to Singapore to have done some studies to understand whether we should adopt a HDB similar concept over in Malaysia. And that's caused a huge ruckus, basically many claiming that it will not assist the Malays. So I think this came after remarks in an interview that he had, uh, where he said that um, they would be bringing in uh, HDB contractors um, mm. to, I suppose, help uh, transform or to for some knowledge sharing or expertise um, sharing in terms of how do we deal with um, affordable housing here in Malaysia. And um, I think some took that to mean that uh, the minister was making a dig at the civil service, calling our Malaysian civil service inefficient. Uh, that was one angle. And then also there have been political parties that have jumped on comments to uh, say that uh, this is a, a means of uh, threatening, I guess, Bumiputra yeah. home ownership, um, which, to be honest, <laughs> I find uh, I'm really flabbergasted by these allegations because they, they, to me, they sound incredibly outlandish. Let's go to the root cause, though. Do we really have a home ownership issue in Malaysia? That, for me, is the first question to sort out. Because if you look at our data, Malaysia's percentage of home ownership is relatively decent, yeah, at about 73% as of 10, 2010. And I'm sure it's gone up since then. Yes, if you compare with Singapore, which is at 87 to 90%, we are behind. But if you look at other peers in the region, like Australia, 68%, UK, 67%, our home ownership isn't so bad. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, are we solving the right problem? Is home ownership the core problem here, right? And I get the whole point that for many people, it's about having shelter, but are there different ways of getting there, right? Should we build more effective rent schemes? And is the issue about building more houses and supply? I mean, for me, that's the big question. The fact is a lot of people want to own homes, but they can't. They're priced out of the market. Yeah. Um, and over across the causeway, we see that Singapore does have a successful scheme that provides affordable housing to the population um, and gives people a chance to get on that property ladder. And I as I would be curious to see why, what, whether that can be replicated here. I mean, uh, no one's saying that HDB is a perfect scheme or that they have everything, that they don't have their own problems. But I do think that there are elements in what they're doing there mm. that um, could very well be also implemented here for the benefit of Malaysians. Yeah, I guess for me, the proof is really in the pudding. And as far as I know, Singapore's HDB model has worked out quite successfully. And I do recall at the height of the Hong Kong protests where housing was really a contentious issue at that point in time. I think it's something the Hong Kong government did wish it had actually emulated. I mean, if you look at Malaysia's affordable housing scheme, it's quite 
complicated. It's fraught with some non-uniformity. And then I've done some research and there are five affordable housing initiatives from the government to stimulate property ownership. The likes of Prima, you have Residency, Wilaya, yeah. you have My Home, you have Rumah Slangoku, and you have Scheme Rumah Pertamaku, My First Home Scheme. And they all have different sort of eligibility and how do you actually qualify for it? So my question is, why is the conversation all still defined by race over this issue of housing? Because when I hear you, I mean, I don't think it's as big a problem as I think both of you are saying that we should take some elements of Singapore's model and I grant that's important. I feel the bigger issue is what are you doing to help the next generation, the younger generation? If you're saying it's a challenge for many people like the younger generation to get onto the property ladder, then let's think about the solutions and problems, you know, by dissecting it by the segment that really is hurting from that. I don't understand why we are playing, uh, putting a race element to the issue of property ownership here. That's I, the question in my mind. I have, I agree with you there, Phil. I do think that uh, uh, claims of racial discrimination or threats to a certain racial group, uh, they're, they're politicizing it. You, no? could, you could slice it urban versus rural. You could slice it poor versus wealthy. You could slice it young versus old. There's so many ways to look at where the gaps are in our property market for different segments. Well, this is something that uh, no doubt will continue to get attention. And I'm sure we'll also be looking um, into this issue more on the various segments on our show. Um, But another, I I guess, area of uh, scrutiny at the moment is really on touch and go. And this week, the ministry has announced that there will be a special task force launched to investigate touch and go service complaints. This comes from the Ministry of Domestic Trade and Cost of Living. And this comes really on the back of um, torrential uh, complaints of just how difficult it is really to use a TNG services sometimes. So I think the the backstory behind this was that TNG, I think a couple of about weeks ago, launched this Visa TNG card. And so I think many people perhaps were confused about the difference between this prepaid card versus the actual TNG card. So that is why you're hearing a lot from the ministry saying, can you rebrand this TNG Visa card? Because it's creating a bit of confusion over what are the utilities and what you can use for the different cards. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, the TNG Visa debit card can't be used at the tolls. Yes, that is what I understand as well. And this just really compounds frustration at the tolls because currently you've got a number of different ways to pay for tolls all under TNG. You could use your TNG card, you could use RFID, you can use a smart tag. And um, not all of these, they're not they're not foolproof, essentially. There's so many problems um, at the toll uh, lanes sometimes. I have to say I'm a super uncle. I actually bought the fly swatter. <laughs> so you're one of those I'm one of those stick, fl- your stick, stick my hands up still. I'm unfortunately not, you're not even even progressed to the smart tag guy. That's how ancient I am. You know, I actually visited the TNG booth recently at Bangsa South because one of my mom's TNG cards expired without her knowledge and she could not exit the parking. So there was nothing to really forewarn her of this and there could be, be perhaps better managers. SMS could be sent to a number to warn her that you know your card is expiring. Mm. I also wanted to change one of my TNG cards, which is, which is expiring in April of this year. But I was told I can only do it a month prior to expiry. So I, I have to make another trip there when my card expires i have to be aware that it's going to expire in april and make that trip so i guess there are a lot more things that can potentially be improved yeah there was also a lot of concerns that now there's actually an extra charge for the top up 
wherever you go to. I've seen actually that going around different social media. Right, I was charged 50 cents at one of, the, top, <laughs> one of the places, right? So I guess that's also one of the big concerns. So the debate is tolls, you know, you kind of have a monopoly over the payment system. How do you kind of rationalize that? I guess that's one of the biggest challenges the ministry, ministry has to contend with. I mean, this is this could be used as an example of how monopolies tend to work to consumers' detriment, no? Um, so I think that this is a discussion that's going to continue percolating and hopefully we will see some improvement to consumer delivery service uh, in the, the cl- sooner rather than later, essentially. Um, but uh, let's also turn our attention to another piece of news that just came out overnight, and this is involving Hello Gold. That's right. Uh, goodbye to Hello Gold because they are shutting down their operations in Malaysia and Thailand. It says the business is no longer commercially viable in the current market conditions, and it will pivot completely to a B2B model. Yeah, I think what they said is that the number of investors that they have is just 60,000. And in terms of them, them being the, they actually want it to be more sustainable, having a, a higher mass market rather than a mass affluent market. But I guess um, the move now to BD, to B2B, hopefully that's, this works out for them. But as long as the retail customers actually get their money back and are able to withdraw their money, I think it still should be fine, right? So I find this very interesting because I'm going a bit through nostalgia. This was one of my first interviews I conducted uh, when I joined uh, BFM. And when I spoke to Robin at the time, Robin Lee, who is the chief executive officer, his goal was to make gold investments mainstream. He didn't want it to be, you know, the, the, the domain of the top 5%. He wanted it to be mass market. So it seems that it has been challenging to kind of make it mainstream and perhaps it's a function that people can people want to touch and feel the gold mm. people want to see people want to be given a gold coin during Ang Pao you know and such you don't want the ETF right I don't want the physical gold you want that bracelet on <laughs> yeah. your wrist right I want that bracelet and I can get the business logic that many of us here especially India China right we live with the tangible element of gold so perhaps digitizing it and putting it into a track exchange just didn't materialize. Maybe not now. It could be something later down the road. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, it is 9.58 in the morning. Before we head into the 9am news bulletin, oh, well, the 10am news bulletin, let's just quickly cover some op-eds that uh, we think could be good reading as you head into the weekend. One is uh, from Malaysia Kini. Uh, this is an op-ed written by Zan Azli on what is the role of a public broadcaster. I think something that's important to take note of as uh, RTM announced the appointment of its new director general. Um, And another uh, issue that has really caught attention is, of course, that of the SPM workshop over in the school in Johor Bahru that has sparked claims of discrimination. Uh, Mustafa K. Anwar wrote an op-ed about it on the Malaysian Insight. Do check that out. This has been uh, the morning run on WTF. We have the 10 a.m. news bulletin coming up next. Then it's over to Enterprise. Stay tuned. BFM (laughs) 89.9. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.